0: Oborn and Heller on cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar.
1: Hello, it's Peter Oborn, and with the very partial easing of lockdown, I'm back in London. And I want to ask Richard Heller, first of all, what the easing of lockdown means, Richard, for cricket across the country. Hello
0: from me, Richard Heller, still in London, never left it. It's very hard to know what the easing of lockdown is going to mean for cricket because the government hasn't mentioned it in its 50-page guidance on uh, the easing of lockdown. It's mentioned other sports, but not cricket. And as far as one can see, cricket's been made to fend for itself, both top-level cricket, international cricket, and more importantly, as
1: regards the restoration of recreational and social cricket. It really annoys me that they mention tennis, golf and football, but not cricket, and given that this is the cricket season. But first of all, I think we should follow up on that marvellous conversation we had with Nathan Lehman last week.
0: Yes, we are indeed going to follow up that um, great conversation with Nathan Lehman about his novel. We're going to ask why there aren't more cricket novels. Cricket's a wonderful game for fiction writers to write about, why haven't more English fiction writers taken the opportunity?
1: Start off by saying that in the inside cover of the book, The Test, it says it's the best English cricket novel since J.L. Carr's A Season in Sinji, which seems a plausible claim, except that I haven't read uh, A Season in Sinji. Should I do so, Richard?
0: Yes, it's a, a verified novel, and cricket's an integral part of it. But Season in Sinji was published in 1967, And that claim by Nathan's publisher does show how little cricket fiction has intervened in between. Though I could think of some examples, it's still quite a striking gap. There are many, many more American front rank novels about baseball, which is a much more boring game than cricket, than there are English novels about cricket. And why is that? Isn't it Uh,
1: because um, Americans lack taste? They regard baseball as somehow important, whereas the British have a sort of snobbish view of sport. This was a suggestion we got from Roger Alton, the sports correspondent of The Spectator magazine. He has a column there. He came up with a thesis that there was a English snobbery which prevented uh, us from writing books about cricket or serious writers doing that anyway.
0: Well, yes, Roger, in a very forthright way, thinks that Americans take sport more seriously than the British do, and thinks that Americans have got no inhibitions about writing about sport. They don't feel that they're lowering themselves intellectually in any way when they take up sport. He points out that there are many more American novels, front rank novels, about baseball, particularly in modern times, than there are about um, English ones, about cricket, talked about The Natural by Bernard Malamud, which was made into a movie. There's The Art of Fielding by Chad Harback. There's Might Have Been by Joe Schuster. There's Shoeless Joe, which became Field of Dreams, a novel by W.P. Kinsella. Many more we can go on about. And he said, to put it in his own words, I think it's vaguely that sport is part of the American nature, whereas here it's ultimately perceived as a bit of old crap and people are very snooty about it.
1: And actually, that's been internalised by great English sporting commentators. I think mean, John Arlott, I think it was, who coined the term the great triviality about cricket. And I, I am wondering if he's right to say that. Isn't there something much more important and universal about sport than the Brits acknowledge and that we're being too self-deprecating about it? I think that's right. I don't think we realise how important sport is. I mean, Bill Shankly knew
0: how important it was. when He's asked whether it's a match for Liverpool was a matter of life and death, and he said it's more important than that. Sport in English culture tends to be put into a niche. It's been put into several niches. It's been put into the niche of being something that manly boys and empire builders did, and that was the result of Thomas Hughes in Tom Brown's school days, and even more so the result of a poem You know, Henry Newbolt's Play Up, Play Up and Play the Game. That associated sport, and particularly cricket, with, as I say, with manly empire building. And so writers and intellectuals who didn't like manly empire building turned away from sport.
1: Newbolt's poem is absolutely marvellous, of course. I mean, it's very moving and actually... I've read Tom Brown's Schoolboy Days, and I, I was very I thought it's lovely book. Actually, it's, it should be read today much more than it is, and its accounts of cricket are very good. But it is true that in the twentieth century, I can't think of a single major British writer who writes about cricket at all. And you know, from D. H. Lawrence, Somerset Maugham, Arnold Bennett, you know Evelyn Waugh, all the great British. English writers ignore it. And that's a very telling moment, actually. I'm a great... I've read almost everything that Evelyn Waugh has written, and uh, as a young man, he wrote an essay. His brother Alec, who was a very uh, middle-brow English novelist, was part of a cricket team, and he prevailed upon his Evelyn to go and play or watch one of these matches. And Evelyn Waugh wrote this very scathing account of his trip on a Sunday afternoon to somewhere outside London, were these literary types. I mean, not great writers, but sort of middle-brow literary types who were enjoying cricket. And he obviously re- felt nothing but contempt for them. Well, he did. Even Ward didn't
0: like his brother Alec, uh, whom he nicknamed Baldhead. Alec Ward was a very prominent member of the cricket team run by John Squire, which is caricatured, In that terribly overrated cricket match in England, There, England by A.G. MacDonald, he's uh, presented as Bobby Southcott, and he's a good cricketer. Evelyn Waugh positioned himself as an aesthete. I think he was actually a member of a club at Oxford called the Aesthetes. Aesthetes prided themselves on not being sporty at all, not falling for the heartiness of their sporting colleagues, and conversely, Harties and sportsmen used to regularly trash the rooms of aesthetes and even, you know, debag them in the quad. That comes into Evelyn Ward's writing. Anyway, he was in very much in the opposite camp in this rather artificial division that got established in English culture between aesthetes,
1: intellectuals, and, and games players. It very much says, if you look at the other fantastic novelists, there were, well, you know, Graham Greene, uh co Anthony Powell, a uh, contemporary. It just, they don't have cricket in their, in their novels. By the way, I've got to mention the fact that our umper Ian Vaughan Arbuckle, who we were discussing in connection with Dwyn Bramall last week or the week before, Ian actually played Bobby Southcott in a film of that cricket match. Really? He was at British military headquarters, he says, when he got a call as captain of the British Army cricket team and they, he was asked to go off and uh, bat because obviously the actor didn't know how to bat. Oh. And so there is a film made in the late 60s of, of England, There England, that book you talk about, in which the batsman hitting all the runs is is our umper, Colonel, I should say, Colonel Ian Vaughan Arbuckle, Whoa. and uh, he said he got very well paid, three hundred pounds a day, I think.
0: Knowing Ian, I'm sure it was you know one take, one take, Ian Vaughan Arbuckle. Cricket's notoriously hard to film. Joseph Losey had a lot of had to take a lot of time over the cricket scene in The Go Between, and he made that as a film. And it's very important either to coach actors in playing cricket, and make it look authentic, or to get you know, good stunt doubles for them. And um, it's a difficult process. So, you know, all power to Ian vaughan Buckhorn. Um, he deserved to be well paid.
1: Yes, I, I, but I want to go back to that book, England, That England. I am so glad to hear you say it. it's very overrated because it was thrust down our throats as being the classic piece of writing about cricket, and actually it's hackneyed, it's clichéd, it's not funny at all. The one writer of great significance in the last century who did mention cricket at all, as far as I'm thinking, is Kipling, because he there is a cricket match. Kim plays cricket uh, while he's at this sort of uh, version of an English public school in Armemabad, isn't he?
0: Yeah, they tried to make him into an English gentleman briefly. They don't really succeed. But he gets an English, proper English education... And indeed, he's a member of the cricket team. He's a
1: left-arm bowler. <laughs> is that what he played? Kipling himself did not like cricket. And it's one of the interesting things about Kipling is that he wrote school novels, like so many of the great writers of yeah. the last century, Westwood Ho. And I don't recollect any mention of cricket at all in Westwood Ho. And they, you know, they were wandering around the country. They were quite daring. They used to go out of bounds. And, but they never yeah. played cricket. And I think that was because Kepling very much disliked his public school and everything it stood for.
0: Yep, he did indeed dislike his public school and all his I think all his child heroes are anti establishment figures in some sort of way. They um you know, they reject conventions, so he'd reject very much reject cricket as part of that. The other I think Terribly disappointing description of a cricket match that gets anthologised regularly. It's by a great writer, uh, Dickens, his Dingley Dell match in the in the Pickwick Papers, and it's you know, it's very entertaining because it introduces Mister Jingle, but it's absolutely rotten as a description of the the cricket. And Dickens would never have got a job as a sports reporter. He might just possibly have got a job in the radio commentary box as a sort of commentator who talks about pigeons or colourful people in the park in the in the crowd but um he wouldn't have known even to read out the score
1: interesting because he was a very good uh political sketch writer so he might have gone in that direction uh, I agree with you about his description of that cricket match it also doesn't have any of the it's clearly somebody who doesn't understand cricket writing about cricket uh, which is very much true of again of the 19th century novelists I mean George Eliot no not no cricket Given it such a, it was the central national sport, in the throughout the 19th century. You know, there's nothing in the great Henry James. Of course, wouldn't be bothered with cricket much. Far beneath him, there is a sort of great gaping cricket-sized hole in the English novel. Richard, well, there is. I think another factor that
0: um, inhibited serious writers, English writers, from writing about cricket is the fact that sports stories were generally written for children and in great quantity. And so they tended to have a very cliched format. You know, the duffer who comes good or the, um, the outsider who um, becomes the hero of the school. Because children like reading the same story over and over again. So you don't write about sport if you want to be established as an adult writer. And a thing that I'm sure fascinate you as well is P.G. Woodhouse great schoolboy writer. Starts his whole career writing novels for schoolboys, particularly about cricket. Terribly proud of his cricket novels. When he had a discussion about writing After the War with George Orwell, they spent most of their time talking about his cricket novels, and they're better than almost anybody else's for children. And yet, when he starts writing adult novels, he drops cricket almost entirely. There are a few standalone stories about cricket, but... None of the drones play cricket. There's no cricket match at Blanding's Castle for Lord Emsworth or any of the other. There's no country house cricket at any of the stately homes that are described in P.G. Woodhouse. He just walks away
1: from Mm. cricket altogether, even though he still loved it all his life. There's one novel which kind of, uh, in that period where he's evolving as a writer, Smith's journalist. So Mm. when they go to New York together, Smith and Mike, and Mike's on a cricket tour. But of course, Smith then sets up a newspaper, Cosy Moments, and they diverge. And we don't hear anything about Mike's uh, cricketing in Smith journalist. And before then, though, Mike is a great cricketer, isn't he, for that school? And so is Smith, because Smith is an absolutely brilliant, fascinating character, I think, as interesting Mm. in his way as Bertie or Jeeves. Mm. He's actually Bertie and Jeeves rolled into one in many ways. Is that right? Go on. Tell me about it. When you
0: think well, he's can play a silly ass and he's a you know, he's a tough and um he can act like a silly ass if he wants to, but he's also, you know, a schemer and a plotter and the man who particularly in the final Smith novel, in the um Leave It Smith, he's the fixer. He's the, the man who gets all the sundered hearts put together as Jeeves did. So he's a sort of prototype of both Bertie and Jeeves, in my view.
1: But he's also, I seem to remember, quite a good cricketer isn't he I mean he didn't he was he a leg spinner yet another slow left arm bowler some reason
0: writers are fascinated by slow left arm bowlers
1: but your point is so interesting I hadn't reflected on this that once Woodhouse abandons the schoolboy's story cricket vanishes those Mike stories are very very interesting just to return to Evelyn Waugh for a bit he made this the reason I read them is that I read this remark by Waugh that Woodhouse's schoolboy stories are more interesting than any of his other stories because he's discovering in him the great powers he had but didn't know he had as a writer. And so you're seeing this great genius emerging out of the chrysalis.
0: P.G. Woodhouse's cricket schoolboy books are much better
1: than the conventional
0: ones. They have a lot of later Woodhouse beginning to emerge in them. We see a lot of wordplay. And um, the plotting is usually better than the conventional plotting as well.
1: Yeah, it is it is odd, though, because Woodhouse didn't give up writing about sport. There was an awful lot of golf. Actually, I don't, I'm not particularly fond of those 19th hole stories, but he just, there's nothing about uh, cricket. What explains it? Uh, he used to play a lot of cricket
0: himself, Woodhouse, not just as a schoolboy at Dulwich, but afterwards for the author's the cricket club, maybe as he stopped playing cricket and played much more golf and probably heard a lot more golf stories that he could adapt he just may have found more source material in golf. And golf has more devotees. He may have had, a, and particularly more devotees in the United States,
1: where he had a public. He went to the States, didn't he? And of course, that would have separated him from cricket, but not at all from golf. But of course, he named Jeeves after a cricketer, which is a central point, isn't it?
0: He did. And he's, um, there's a fine book about um, Jeeves the cricketer, which uh, I think we will discuss in a later episode. But. Um, He watched Jeeves, who was a young uh, Warwickshire cricketer and a very fine, actually, opening bowler. And uh, everybody said it was destined for an English career, but was sadly killed on Somme in 1916
1: with many others. I mean, it's a very sombre and melancholy subject. What do you think, by the way, of uh, the one book I really did enjoy? I haven't read it for 50 years, or uh, Hugh de Selincourt's. The Cricket Match, I, I find that rather a moving picture of English village life. Those
0: books stand up extremely well, I agree with you. They were, interestingly, they were revived in the 1970s by John Parker, a journalist. Same village and the descendants of
1: the original characters. And those books, the 70s books, are pretty good too. The original book, The Cricket Match, was 1920s, wasn't it, I think? 1924. And who was um, Hugh de Selincourt?
0: Hugh de Selincourt was a... Um, You know, a a writer came from a literary family. He was related, and I can't remember quite how, to A. A. Milne. (laughs) Right. Who, incidentally, was also a cricketer for the authors. And um, Hugh de found this particular niche, writing about village cricket. He wrote about it so well that, in a way, I think he harmed cricket, as it were, as a subject for, for later writers. Because he made it a kind of, he put it in another box, you know, a box of ideal, vanished village life in England. So did, incidentally, earlier did um, Siegfried Sassoon in the Shurston novels. There's a lot of cricket in there. Very autobiographical trilogy. Siegfried Sassoon uses cricket as an expression of um, pre-war England. And so if he didn't... which And they both are very good descriptions of cricket and very good books, but... uh, writers, but they, in a sense, sort of defined cricket for other people in a way that they didn't may not have wanted to write about. If you didn't want to write about ideal village life that has disappeared,
1: you couldn't write about cricket. By the way, the ground he used to play on in Hatesbury, I used to play there quite a lot. Really? You mean Siegfried Sassoon? Yeah. Yeah Siegfried Sassoon and mm-hmm. I knew people who remembered him. Really? My old history teacher, Jeremy Barker, used to I think he did his national service somewhere around there and he used to He says he used to have long chats with Siegfried Sassoon, and he's a gorgeous grand at Hatesbury and um, the family house. Unfortunately, they put quite a main road straight through the front lawn, which was an act of rather typical vandalism of the sixties. L. P. Hartley wrote rather well about cricket, I think. I think that one of the reasons why Hartley wrote well is that he very naturally inserted. A cricket match into the go between, didn't he? And it sort of worked perfectly there. There was nothing sort of nostalgic or mannered about it, which I think there is in some of the Sastoon writing about cricket. It's absolutely right. In the plot, in the setting, which is, you know, pre war in
0: um, a family who's got a country house, it's very logical that they'd have a, a you know, a country house match against against the village. It's a very, very good way of defining the class divisions, which are really what that entire novel is about. As it were, the squire's team, the landowner's team, are the sort of privileged amateurs, the um you know, the village team are the sons of toil, and um they're allowed to meet in this setting, but on terms set by the landowner in a slightly condescending way, and very symbolically, in the actual cricket match, the boy who's been bridging the social gulf between the Yeoman Farmer, the character played by Alan Bates, and the um, landowner's daughter, played in the film by Julie Christie, the actual go between catches the Alan Bates character. I can't help thinking the movie because they, they did Joseph Losey did shoot it particularly well after all his trouble.
1: Oh, uh, interesting. As you know, I'm a huge fan of the William Brown stories. I read them almost all the time. And um, there is a a country house match in one of the William Brown stories where the Brown household, which is very solidly respectable middle class, William's older brother, Robert, gets this invitation, sending an absolute frisson of excitement through his family to go and play in Sir Gerald Markham's country house cricket weekend week rather and uh, William uh, Sir Robert turns up this rather earnest middle-class boy uh, and is uh, finding himself very much uh, at a loss or embarrassed in this rather grand setting full of elegant young women who ignore him huh? uh, and it, William of course comes to the rescue in various ways and says it right so that that is a very It rather reminds me of the go-between for some reason.
0: But slightly happier ending. It's interesting. William either ruins Robert's life, or you know saves the day. There's nothing in between.
1: Well, (laughs) funny enough, he often does both. Because what he does is he first of all plunges Robert into a catastrophic situation of social mortification. But then that leads somehow to uh, Robert's vindication, and and it did. One subject I would like to ask you about, Richard, is Simon Raven. He was at school, as we all know, with um, the greatest English post-war batsman Peter May at China House. But I've actually never read the novels, but they apparently do contain an awful lot of cricket, don't they?
0: They have a lot of cricket in them. He was um, a great enthusiast for cricket. His autobiography also contains a lot of cricket. His novels tend to be about... Even the cricketers are... It's a new category of cricketer, really. It's the cricketer as a cad. You know, the cricketer as a, as a bounder, as a somebody who lives in a very loose world, you know, who's not just a cricketer, but is probably also a gambler and indulging in illicit sex and, um, no doubt cheating on his taxes as well. So, um, it's almost, the, it's subverting the, um, The myth of cricketers as, you know, manly boys who go out and save the empire. These are um, louche boys who go out and become remittance men in the empire.
1: Does he have a portrait of Peter May, who doesn't fit into the category you describe? He does. There are some good cricketers in them, but they're always contrasted with the um,
0: sort of louche ones. And Peter May figures... I can't remember his name, but he's one of the the major figures in the Fielding Gray novels, the whole sequence of novels that, um, that Simon Raven produced about life in the fifties. Peter May is a good schoolboy in the novels. Who, I can't wish I could remember his name. Who is constantly being, you know, subverted by the bad schoolboy, <laughs> yeah. Simon Raven. Yeah. That's Jim Pryor? Uh, Jim Jim Pryor appears in that novel as well. Because he so was William Rees-Mogg, with... who's the 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 scheming <laughs> scorer. Um, William Rees-Mogg. William <laughs> Rees-Mogg is a sort of bad guy in those Simon Raven novels. Yep.
1: <laughs> I didn't hmm. know that.
0: Yes. Simon Raven, uh, and I can't remember if it's in the... Just thinking of the cricketer as the cad and the, the one of the cricketers Simon Raven writes about, I can't remember if it's in fiction or fact, in his autobiography or possibly both, is a batsman who has uh, part of his bat handle hollowed out to provide a flask for gin. <laughs> That sounds like so Gary he can, Sobers. So, so he, can have yeah. Nips. Yeah, he doesn't have it brought out on the ground. He just has nips out of his bat from <laughs> time to time.
1: Now, the other figure who reminds me a bit of Simon Raven, although I think it's for a separate discussion, is Terence Rattigan, because playwrights and cricket is quite a rich subject. But Rattigan was very interested in cricket. We discussed last week, of course, Rattigan's uh, opening the batting with Victor Rothschild for Harrow in 1928. He did nineteen twenty nine and he was disappointed not to be picked in nineteen
0: thirty in the subsequent match. radigan didn't write a play about cricket, but he wrote a movie script about it called the Final Test in um, nineteen fifty three it's um you know about an old cricketer's well aging cricketer's last appearance for England and his relationship with his son, who was a poet so again you get this eastly sporting divide. the poet has rejected cricket he wants to break away from his father's world of cricket, from the hearty world that he's been brought up in, but he's actually brought back into it. It's a, a you know, it has a happy ending. They're reconciled, actually through cricket, and um, uh, it was a very well received movie. It suffers a little bit from the casting of um, Jack Warner, later famous as Dixon of Doc Green in the long-running police series. Jack Warner was 57, and even for a veteran cricketer, he really doesn't look too convincing as a, as a test match player. No, I can um, imagine. That. I, I, to need... I just have to say, because they do cameo roles, neither do Len Hutton and Dennis Compton. I think it's Godfrey Evans who make um, cameo appearances as themselves in the England dressing room. They look a bit strained as well.
1: I um, think we're going to need to have a separate discussion on playwrights, because whereas we've agreed and established that there's no rather disgraceful lack of interest in cricket from novelists... Playwrights are different, and I think we should discuss them uh, in another week. But I want to ask you about uh, what you said there. We're reminded very much of H.G. Wells, who again is another great writer who, as far as I know, never mentions cricket. But his, didn't he, wasn't his father some form of professional cricketer? His
0: father was a celebrated cricketer
1: and was the first... He's
0: got a, an entry in Wisden. He's the He was the first bowler to take four wickets and four balls in um, first-class cricket. And it's interesting, Wells didn't play cricket or, um, as you say, write about it, but he was a terribly enthusiastic games player and he invented a game of his own called the Wells game, which I think was a sort of... a kind of version of volleyball and... When you went to visit HG Wells, whoever you were, you had to play the Wells game. It never caught on, certainly never replaced cricket, but um, a very sporting man who,
1: for some reason, turned against cricket. Perhaps he didn't like his father. Or well, wanted to escape from his shadow because he wrote a lo- very moving books about his childhood and early youth, like history True, of yep. Mr Polly and so on, where True. cricket would have been very natural uh, to come in. But I'm sure that I've never read Wells having a cricket scene, let alone a theme. I can't remember
0: one either. There's no cricket in the time machine. It doesn't survive. No, no, I'm not thinking <laughs> of I'm just thinking of sci-fi bits. There's no cricket that survives far into the future. Or War of the Worlds.
1: We don't get cricket. No, no the no. Martians don't play cricket. They, don't. <laughs> <laughs> they,
0: they um, I think they'd have the advantage. They'd be pretty... I think they'd. Uh, the Martians would have produced a lot of fast bowlers.
1: I... um. See that uh, one of the... Have you read? I mean, you've read everything. Maybe you've read this one. Didn't the greatest English batsman of all times, Hobbes, write a cricket novel?
0: Jack Hobbes did indeed write a... um, or put his name to a novel. It was ghosted by a a hack thriller writer called Sidney Haller. It's a very prophetic novel. It's called The Test Match Surprise. It's prophetic in that it predicts an English victory at Headingley, in which England have to chase what seems like an impossibly uh, high total and are propelled to victory by a a brilliant century from a figure, well, rather like Hobbes in his day, but rather like Stokes in our day. And um, it's quite a... um, that was written in 1926, so um, Hobbes and his collaborators saw into the future, what,
1: 80 years on. That's very interesting indeed, isn't it? Yeah, it was more than 350 they had to get and uh, the Aussies had batted first and um, led by more than 100. Then Stokes, the Stokes figure, wins. It's almost word for word what happens in the test match, but interestingly, I think, is also very similar. I'm not going to give away the result or anything in the test by Nathan Lehman, which we rate so highly, but the actual structure of the match there is very, very similar as well.
0: It is. It's, it, you know, it, it's the, the on-field and off-field drama of one single test match. Interestingly replicated by another great English batsman about 40 years later, Ted Dexter, produced a thriller helped by a journalist, Clifford Makins. He produced a thriller in 1963 called Test Kill. it's all one word, which is set during a single Lord's Test match. It's a good read, it's better on the cricket... Side of things than it is as a a thriller, as a detective story, but um, it's very good on the cricket detail. You can see portraits of John Arlott in it, very recognisably, and also um, England's great fast bowlers, Statham and Truman. Well worth a read. Fascinating to look at all these ways in which writers have um, tackled cricket. Still, not enough cricket novels written. While cricketers are in lockdown, any cricketers who have got any idea for a novel uh, or any novels already written in the waiting in the desk drawer, now is the time to finish them and complete them. And um, when you send them to an agent or a publisher, the uh, predictable response of the agent and the publisher will add an extra yard of pace to your bowling if you're a bowler and an extra hammer to your bat if you're a batsman. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, yes, I
1: couldn't... I know. We know that we that say you, know, you say that with enormous feeling. I want to move on the subject, though. We've just celebrated or marked the very solemn moment of, of VE Day. How did you spend it? Well, I um,
0: spent a lot of time uh, playing We'll Meet Again on the piano in um, my block of flats in Roberto Towers for The Neighbours. And you know they, they banged on the walls and the ceilings for encores, and I had to do it over and over again.
1: Yes, all right. But seriously, I want to ask you: How did how about English cricket uh, as we went to war in nineteen fourteen and nineteen forty-five?
0: Well, quite seriously, it did um, make one uh, make me, you know, go back to reflect on um, uh, how English cricket coped with with both world wars, and there was quite a strong contrast. Christopher Sanford, this historian, has written books about each of the last cricket seasons before the um, the Great Wars of the 20th century. He wrote The Final Over about 1914, and more recently The Final Innings about 1939. And they're both enriched by a lot of um, contemporary letters and diaries, which he quotes. And really, the response was, of cricket was very different. And it's because of the very different circumstances in which the war arrived. In 1914, war was, um, came very suddenly as far as the United Kingdom was concerned. It hadn't been predicted. And um, when it did arrive, people thought uh, it wouldn't be a long war and it wouldn't interfere. It would be, the British professional army would fight it, would win it quickly with its allies. And um, it wouldn't affect life at home. The the whole slogan in 1914 was business as usual. And um, that war broke out in August. The county championship was um, in progress. And it went on uh, until W.G. Grace, in his last public act, urged cricketers in a letter to the Times to enlist instead of playing cricket. It's interesting that W.G. Grace was the... um, next to Lord Kitchener, was in a sense a big recruiter for um, the forces, and also perhaps had the sense that it was not going to be a short war, that
1: it was going to be a very long one. Fascinating. I must say that that is very true, (laughs) that people just didn't realise in 1914. They were convulsed by the Irish crisis. They were convulsed, actually, by the mutiny in the Curragh, they were convulsed by the suffragettes, and I think right right until the end of these sort of obscure events in the Balkans didn't arrest people's attention no, well, at all.
0: Not at all. Archduke assassinated. You know, turn to page ninety-four. Archduke assassinated. Balkan crisis. You know, <laughs> continues page ninety-four, and um, it's quite a surprise that it, that general war broke out. They did. There'd been Balkan crises before, and. Um, When it did break out, as I say, everybody thought it would be over quickly, without interference into British life. Very different, of course, in 1939. War had nearly happened in 1938. It was expected to break out almost at any moment in 1939. We knew, almost everybody knew, that um, we would go to war against Hitler at some stage, and everybody expected it to be a long war. Interesting quote in the 1939 season... Uh, showing that people knew that they were on borrowed time. The Cambridge University captain, Peter Studd, <laughs> said he hoped to God Hitler wouldn't declare war until the cricket season was over. And uh, actually, Hitler was sort of... Um, almost did the, did the thing. The season was very, very nearly over at the beginning of September, when we did eventually go to war. The visiting West Indian team went home early. The county championship was abandoned early. Everybody knew that this was a a serious war, and um, the last match in the county championship was Yorkshire versus Sussex, and it was rather poignant because it was the last great performance by the great left-arm Yorkshire spinner, Hedley Verity. He took seven for nine, won the, um, won the match for Yorkshire very handily ahead of time. The players said goodbye, and they didn't know when they'd
1: see each other again. And, of course, Verity didn't return. He he was killed in, what was it, 19, July forty three, in Catania. In, indeed, in the invasion of Sicily. He was a captain
0: in the Green Howard's regiment, which was very much a Yorkshire regiment. He was very proud of serving in that regiment with Len Hutton and Herbert Sutcliffe and Maurice Leyland and Arthur Wood, all Yorkshire test players. But they survived the war. But um, Verity was a, was a captain who was involved in... Serious fighting. He was part of the Allied invasion of Sicily. Uh, took a bullet in the chest in the Sicily campaign, and um, his first thought was for the safety of his men. He wasn't killed, but he was taken prisoner. Had an emergency operation. Germans and the Italians let him be, um, let him have an operation in prison of war camp, and um, he had a very painful operation there, which. Um, unfortunately killed him at the age of 38. Before he died, his last thoughts were for his wife and his two children. And a very moving, very poignant death, um, which affected well affected England very deeply.
1: I think I love the story of... Um, again, it makes you reflect about the importance of these matters. When, when Len Hutton uh, led the England side to Australia for the momentous 54-55 Ashes series... He stopped the boat in Italy for the team to get out of the boat. And they went, went to his grave, laid a wreath, a single white rose, of course, and a Yorkshire scarf on his yes. grave. Mm, it
0: did. Henry Verity was a you know, genuinely great bowler. He took um, nearly 2,000 wickets in just nine seasons at um, an average of um, 14 in first-class cricket. He was um, a player. Nobody seems to have ever had a bad word about him. There the are people who criticised some of his contemporaries. You know, particularly you know Bradman and Hammond had their detractors. But verity, everybody seems to have admired as a as a player and as a um, and as a person. Very long tribute to him from Don Bradman. He stands out as a cricketer who was respected by absolutely everybody, friend and foe.
1: Who were the other? Uh... Major cricketers or minor cricketers? Who were the other cricketers, Richard, who were killed in World War II?
0: There were four other England cricketers. The best known was Ken Farnes, who was uh, an England fast bowler in the 1930s. George McCauley was another Yorkshireman who'd played in the in the 1920s. Boris Turnbull was um, an England cricketer and a Welsh rugby player, Welsh rugby international, was killed in the beaches of Normandy. Geoffrey Legg was a former Kent captain. Uh, played five test matches. Killed in a in a flying accident rather than in combat. Two South Africans were killed in the Second World War. British Empire forces: one Australian, one New Zealander. Fewer casualties in cricket than than World War One because there was um, less land fighting, for the, at least for the British Empire forces, less static land fighting. And um, though there was a heavy toll, it was. Less severe and less I think possibly less traumatic than um the
1: casualties in World war one just to move from a professional game to the village game, what effect did uh World War I have on village cricket because as we know, the scale of the bloodshed was so huge that whole villages had their young manhood destroyed so what what effect did it have on on social the, the sort of recreational cricket which we play? Can't answer
0: that comprehensively, but certainly there was, I think, quite a determination in English life to restore cricket at, at every level. Thinking back on village sides that I've played and looking at the, you know, a lot of them have the teams, you know, from years and years back, you know, in their pavilion. Think about that. They, it's striking that the village cricket team is often restored almost consciously. as a big effort with anybody they can find who's still available to play cricket. It's usually the, the very young or the or the very old or people who got an exemption from frontline service perhaps they were you know need in agriculture or um, for local manufacturing or something like that Uh, but um i think there was a a very strong determination to restore village cricket teams and um show that life was normal almost as a tribute to the fallen show that um you know that their their memory lived on in the in the village and uh you know certainly you know hudis selencore was able to write his novels about a village team which had survived the war and um was recognizably a, a genre of english cricket
1: thinking about this richard i you know it must have been so poignant when uh the village team reassembles in the summer of as it would have done in the summer of 1919 and plays the local derby match or whatever the first match of the season is and you know the opening bowler isn't there and the number 4 bat and the wicketkeeper's gone and the and the spinner's crippled i mean it, those early matches must have been it's hard to think of imagine even to imagine
0: it was it must it was um it must have been emotionally extraordinarily draining but there was a say there was this um, for the players and spectators there was this determination to um, i think to keep village cricket going and in a few years it is genuinely in full swing again and though the the toll of the virus is, is nothing like thank goodness the the toll uh extorted by world war one there is something of the same effort is going to be needed to keep to restore local and recreational cricket now in the wake of the uh, the viral crisis because the lockdown is having a devastating effect on local and recreational clubs Uh, It's having an effect, been reported in many sources, really in two distinct ways. First of all, it's no playing matches is devastating for clubs' finances. They're not getting receipts, match fees, bar takings. And um, not playing matches, breaking the habit of playing cricket, could lead to a hemorrhage of players from local clubs and it could even promote mergers of clubs, which also leads to a further loss of players. And um, unfortunately cricket has been left, in my view, to fend for itself in the government's uh, guidance on the easing of lockdown. Absolutely no mention of cricket in the 50-page document, even though other sports are covered. It's very alarming. And of course, the grounds, uh, who's maintaining them? Very good point. Uh, We've seen already that um, some grounds, particularly public grounds, are being invaded, taken over by um, other users. And in some cases, practically vandalized. That's quite an effort defending the space around the country, defending the space for cricket if it's not used for cricket regularly.
1: And it's not as if there's that much space, is it? Because the cricket in a public park, it's only that little precious twenty two yards in the middle which needs to be protected. And the nets, you know, that there's not they take up very little space. And I think sometimes people maybe understandably don't understand the importance of just not going onto those 22 yards because they can be destroyed so easily
0: very much so and it's the one space that it's not a very big space in either case it's the one space that cricketers need you know dedicated to themselves there's nothing else you can do in a properly in a cricket net and um, we cricketers need our practice facilities, and we need one dedicated pitch to play on. I don't think that's asking much. Um, you can do almost any other sport in almost any other bit of land. Not only has the government done nothing for cricket, but it's issued very confusing guidance um, as to how cricket will fit into its scheme of outdoor exercise and what's permitted. Uh, cricket is having to interpret that. I've heard a very, uh, for themselves, and I've Want to pass on a very ingenious suggestion um, I've um, heard from Twitter as to as to how um, cricketers could arrange a um, a cricket match between themselves and stay within the guidelines, and that's to um, constitute cricket teams as companies, and appoint all the team members as company directors, and instead of holding a cricket match, hold a board meeting, and um, when the police come along and say what are you doing you say you're having a board meeting and the if you have scorers the scorers
1: are the company secretaries I think this is a subject we're going to have to uh, return to again and again because you can't I think let cricket just vanish and disappear for this summer uh, For for one thing it's very easy to play the game within sensible social distancing guidelines and I think it's is completely unnecessary when in a document which mentions tennis it mentions golf it mentions football that we can't think about how we're going to play cricket so we'll be coming back to this and in addition we've got a terrific guest to discuss his book next week
0: that's um tim wigmore who's written a um, wrote the book selected as the uh, wisdom book of the year um on t20 cricket Uh, He's written a history of T20 cricket and some very interesting thoughts about how T20 cricket is going to continue to evolve as almost a separate form of the game. Uh, So we really look forward to talking to him. Until then, it's it's goodbye for me in South
1: East London. And it's goodbye for me in West London as it very gradually is released from lockdown.